2: This is On Track, the brand-new motorsport show from TalkSport 2. I'm John Jackson, and coming up, the Formula 1 season is finally here, and while a lot changed over the winter, the result was largely the same on the top step of the podium. We'll continue our look behind the scenes in the Formula E World Championship and speak to the person behind the new striking Gen 3 car, and with F1 starting again, so did IndyCar. We'll get the latest from the other side of the pond as the first race of 2023 in Florida did not disappoint but first pleased to say the sun's formula one correspondent ben hunt is with me again to take a look at all the motorsports news first of all and while formula one is back you're fresh back from watching that first race in bahrain so how was it yeah it was an interesting
4: one i always find that bahrain's a bit of a, a strange destination to kick off you know a global event most people say you know where is it you know and you have to explain where bahrain is but maybe we um we shouldn't be so surprised it's been the fifth time now that bahrain has had the season opener so um it is becoming a regular um thing if you want my honest review i would say that it it felt fairly flat and i think that was partly because people had been out there for pre-season testing and everyone was a bit like "Mm," you know worn down by the time we got to sunday everyone was looking forward to going home but um, aside from that yeah very good you know good venue everything works it is quite a good racetrack it just didn't lend itself to very good racing which is a what we'll probably
2: talk about next. Yeah, I and mean, we will get on to the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff in a little while, but first of all, I mean, the most obvious thing we can talk about so far is that Max Verstappen continued where he left off in 2022, and it's looking worryingly like he's just going to continue that throughout 2023, really, doesn't it?
4: It does, yeah. Um. It's, it's very difficult this situation at the moment, because we could be looking and saying, oh, it's all boring, it's all boring. We don't really know, but the general consensus is that it's already over. He's won the title and we've still got 22 races to go. So a bit of a surprise. What I would say, though, is it, it must be difficult to be at Red Bull and, and see all these headlines, all this world around about the negativity because ultimately they they need some sort of credit for the job they've done um they've produced another another very good car even with the limits we've seen um on on aerodynamics which is a result of the cost cap and people say of course they've got the best car they broke the cost cap but ultimately they they have come up with it they've served their punishment in the in the wind tunnels and whatnot um and yeah it, it, they are top of the tree so yeah hats off to them to a certain degree but it's a combination isn't it of them doing well and everyone else sort of stuffing up and i think that's the biggest frustration is the fact that mercedes have started on the bad foot and uh ferrari as well you know disappointing um only just to get one car home so that's that's a shame
2: yeah the reliability issues continue to haunt ferrari really don't they and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago that you know they they are the they're sort of the challenger they're the main challenger with mercedes not doing so well but while mercedes might have fixed the porpoising issue i'd still have their own problems but ferrari really needs need to sort out that that consistency really what did you think of the comments of sergio perez on the on the, in the drivers press conference afterwards that there's uh three red bulls on the uh <laughs> on the podium
4: <laughs> yeah it's quite interesting um christian horner said something funny as well he said something like um great to see last year's car doing so well as well and it's uh you know Aston have a bit of a, a history, don't they? They they were looking at the um, Mercedes and do you remember the pink Mercedes that they, you know, that people yeah. alluded to? Yeah. But if that's the model for success, then you're almost a little bit silly for not copying someone else's homework. You know, you can talk about integrity and, and sporting, but the, the reality is that car has been out there. Everyone's seen it. Everyone knows what it looks like. Everyone knows what a successful car that that was. It was the quickest car, you know, it makes sense, doesn't it? To copy it. If you're, if you're, a team that doesn't have, you know, the same sort of resources as, as a Red Bull, as a, as a Mercedes or a Ferrari, then you just take the next best thing and, and that's probably copying it. So, you know, hats off again to, to Aston Martin. They've done they've done well and it's great to see Fernando in a team that's competitive. You know, that's kind of been his downfall over the last last number of years. You know, he's joined teams at the wrong time. You know, he's gone to, you know, Ferrari when they weren't competitive, um, McLaren when they weren't competitive, and, and Alpine didn't work out either for him. But it looks like he's going to be in the mix this year, which is great for him, great for great for F1, because we need a different car on that podium at races, don't we? And it might as well be the Aston.
2: Yeah, I think also we've got to shout out Lance Stroll to finish sixth, considering, you know, the, the I think we found out a bit more about his injuries Because Mm -hmm. I think wasn't it both wrists he ended up sort of damaging and also his toe and you know I've read somewhere that it it said he wouldn't be back until the the race in Australia in April and you know he's he's really done well having not done the testing as well to finish sixth I know the car you know the car's obviously very strong but I mean that when you know the sort of I mean none of us really know unless we drive a car the physical exertion that goes through driving but we certainly see all the drivers doing all their you know their neck exercises and everything like that to finish sixth with not much preparation and yeah. severe injury is is really impressive. Yeah, it's
4: incredible. There was lots of praise going his direction from from Alonso. Some of it deserved and you just think wow, yeah, cool. If that relationship can work then uh, you know good good for Aston Martin, but yeah, he certainly does need some recognition just even for getting to the end. You know, it must have been a lot of pain, you know, risk risk break you know two weeks ago and then you know he's in the car and completing the race and, and and scoring good points so yeah well done to him
2: yeah I think your early prediction of Aston Martin potentially being uh, you know up in the mix is already uh, proven strong so uh, well done <laughs> on that one we've got to talk a little bit about Mercedes obviously you know Lewis Hamilton fifth and George Russell seventh George Russell's car I quite like the color of the letters I mean uh, the numbers even I mean that's pretty much all I can say about it the car <laughs> looks cool but out on the track as we discussed it's uh, not really working out for them they're going to surely have to make changes
4: yeah I mean it was quite interesting I spoke to total wolf on the um the Saturday so you know we've had practice and we've had pre-season testing but the first time we actually get to see the speed and the faults, if you like with a car is after qualifying and he turned around and said look we've come as far as we can with this concept and, and we need to you know effectively bin it and look at something else and you're like wow hang on a minute you know like we've only had you know 60 minutes of running to make that decision so early on in the season You know, someone said it's like completing the first frame of of a a snooker tournament and then deciding that you've you've had enough and you want to quit. And it's like unprecedented. But then part of me is thinking maybe Toto just gave it the benefit of the doubt. Let's just see what happens. And he is realistic to know that it's not good enough. And he's decided to cut his losses and said, right, okay, back to the drawing board. So argument says, you know, he should have done it you know, six months, maybe 12 months ago when when they come up with a bad design initially. But they have cured the porpoising, which is a good thing. They'd hit all their targets, which they'd set themselves over the winter in terms of the performance of that car, but they just don't think they can get any more out of it, which is the concern. And it means that they've got to change their ideas. And I think, you know, we'll probably see the side pods come back into the, into the design. And I think that um, things will change a lot over the next six months
2: yeah very bold of them to to get rid of them and to stick with that but it's not really proven to have worked i feel a little bit sorry for george russell obviously you know coming in and doing that standalone race doing so well nearly winning the race and then you know joining the team and then since then it's just not been not been happening at all for him it must have been his you know his dream to be at one of the front runners and suddenly they're not a front runner if that makes sense
4: that is true but it's also allowed him a little bit of time to to get up to speed you know okay he had his time at williams which is a very different discipline you know you're driving looking in your mirrors trying not to hold anyone up so you're getting the track experience and the time to to develop and and work with a team that sort of side is done but when you're driving for mercedes yes the, the thought process is different you know you're trying to push forward but because they've been hamstrung by this car and it's been well documented and we you know we can see it at just how how poor it was certainly last year that's kind of I think taken the pressure off a little bit and allowed him to settle into the groove and obviously he was outscoring Lewis at the start of the year and, and I just thought that that was actually quite a good experience for him to be in because he was kind of under the radar, over-delivering, received a bit of praise. And that was good for him, good for his mindset coming into into this year. And yes, the argument is that he, he wants to be winning races and, and championships. I just think he might have to wait a little bit longer, but then it looks like everyone else will as well.
2: Let's talk about Esteban Ocon. He had quite an interesting race didn't finish Mm. the race for Alpine obviously you know he's got that new teammate and there's everyone talking about their sort of you know not so friendly relationship in the past and maybe that's not really the problem here because you know he was hit with a triple penalty which um, I'm sure drivers have had before but it I mean to start the the year with three penalties is not ideal so what the first one was (laughs) for the start position then he got one for not failing to serve that penalty properly during the pit stop and then he was speeding in the pit lane. I mean, yep. I mean, who's at fault for this? This is kind of sloppy. I guess the speeding in the pit lane is him. Stop position him. on the
4: grid is is him as well. Yeah. And with regards to the pit stop and not serving that properly, that isn't his fault. Um, there was a suggestion that the team had touched the car before the five seconds were up, and uh, that's why they had to serve it again. So a bit of everyone to blame, isn't it, really? But um, yeah, the speeding in the pit lane is always a bit of a you know it's, it's frustration that's what that is he's he's annoyed that he's got to come back in and he's just struggled to react in time um to that to that um that point where he has to break and uh yeah it's not a great start was it you know he's going to find that team very difficult and very different to last year he's the one he he should be the leader of that team by virtue of the fact he's been there longer and knows people but of course he's got pierre gasly coming in and he doesn't want him muscling in and taking over that role so i think it's going to be a bit of a bumpy ride for alpine this year you know last year they were very good the car was was great i just think that they'll slip down the pecking order and until they sort out this you know these mistakes and and the harmony between the drivers it could be a bumpy ride for them
2: I think we need to also give a lot of praise to Valtteri Bottas. I feel yeah. like he did well for Alpha to get in the top 10 and also Williams, you know, Alex Albon and Logan Sargent, you know, 10th and 12th. Williams were used to being the guys at the back. And I know that yeah. a few cars yeah. didn't finish, and but they were. Absolutely. Uh, you know,
4: Yeah. And a, and a shout out to James Vowles, who's taken over that team as team boss. You know, he left Mercedes comfortable role, could have stayed there, but he's taken this team principal role and, and it's great that he's done that. And you know, I don't think it could have gone any better, but, you know, a bit realistically, um, you know, both drivers coming home and, and, and finishing the race and, and doing well and showing speed. And I think that, you know, we talk about going back to the top, you know, what we we're talking about with, um, you know, potentially a boring season ahead. I think the difficulty is, is that F1 is actually quite competitive once you take those top two cars out. So you delete the two Red Bulls and the rest of the field is really close and I think that is probably going to be our focus once the title's all done and dusted assuming it is you know just looking at the competitive nature between the rest and it's good for Williams that they're able to catch up because they were cut adrifts for such a long period of time it must be very demoralising so to be in the mix now for regular points is a great great thing for that team
2: OK well we're going to continue the Formula 1 chat in just a few minutes but first some news from the GB3 championship in the UK a couple of new drivers announced for this season already I think 24 drivers Drivers are signed up, 23 announced, with one more already signed up and a couple more on the way, a maximum of 26, uh, which is going to be really, really strong for the season. Obviously, getting all the drivers signed up before the year isn't something that normally happens. So, high tech Pulse 8 to the defending team champions. They've announced the South Korean driver Michael Shin will compete with them this year. It's his second season in single seaters. He's been involved in the F4 UAE Championship and he also did British F4 last season, the full season, where he got one race victory. One driver returning is Zach Taylor. He finished the season with Chris Dittman Racing last year after starting out with Fortex. It's going to be interesting to see how he gets on. His former teammate last year, Mackenzie Creswell, has switched to Elite Motorsport for this year's campaign. And actually, in the first uh, official test last week at Silverstone, he ended up setting the fastest time, 1 minute 52.072. It was in the penultimate session of the week after South African driver Jared Waberski, who's stepping up from GB4 into GB3, had been fastest. So it's good to see him completely taking that form from GB4 last year. ...straight into GB3. The first race of the season is at Alton Park. It's the 8th to the 10th of April. It's uh, one of the support races on the British GT weekend. So if you're going along to Alton Park, you'll see GB3 and GB4 there. And over the next few weeks, we're going to go behind the scenes... ...and catch up with some of the drivers ahead of the 2023 GB3 season. Now next, we'll find out more from behind the scenes... ...in the panic of the opening Formula 1 race of the year. Ben Hunt is still with me now. And you're listening to On Track on Talksport 2 with Formula E... Where you can go behind the scenes of the 2022 formula e season on all four and discovery plus now it's called formula e unplugged you can watch all six episodes right now and the next race takes place in the championship in sao paulo brazil on the 25th of march You're listening to On Track, the brand new motorsport show from TalkSport 2, uh, still with Ben Hunt, the Suns Formula 1 correspondent at every race you've not missed. It, you haven't missed a race for 11 years or you've missed a oh, few I've races. missed a few. Okay. But I've, I've had to put
4: in a few family um, commitments. I can't be that ruthless, can I? No. Any, have you got any plans that
2: you're not going to be at this year?
4: I'm not in Australia um, at the moment. That is a hell of a long way to go um, for three days, so I'm not there for, for that one. But at the moment, I'm, I'm in the process of booking and doing visas and all sorts of headache it's like um it's like the family holiday but it is that times 23 So, um, you know, a big logistical nightmare.
2: Which is the worst for visas? Because I had to go to India recently for the Formula E World Championship. And honestly, that was a day standing in an office to get a visa. (laughs) And then the visa didn't come in time. So I had to go down to the high consulate, stand outside that for another day with all the photographers. And it was we were cutting it fine. Put it that way.
4: Yeah, I mean, India used to be one which we went to. And I remember getting those visas. China used to be a pickle. The American, we've got a a long term visa. So that is just a long form. Um, You know, it takes ages. There's so many questions and then you have to have an uh, appointment and stand in the queue. But when you do get your press visa through, then it lasts for five years. So that that's cool. You know, I don't mind doing it when it's like that. And of course, Russia, we used to have a visa for Russia, but everywhere else is fairly straightforward. You know, it's, it's not too bad, but uh, I just wish that there was some organization like, you know, with the Olympics that it's automatically taken care of with your accreditation that, that your, your visa's done. That would be quite nice if F1 were able to get the same sort of deal.
2: Well, Formula E are very uh, very good to me. They generally sort this out, but there is just some like with India that they can't sort out. I think Indonesia was the easiest visa I've got. You turn up, I think you pay about three quid and they just put a little sticker in your passport <laughs> and you're on your way. Happy days. So um let's talk about Bahrain. You, you've said that Bahrain was a little bit flat. I was talking to a friend and my friend actually said to me at the weekend, don't they start in Australia? I yeah. Was like, yeah. They used to. And I felt like for some reason, I guess because it's the end of the Australian summer, that was there was more yep. excitement around Albert Park. Yeah, and, and it just sounds more exotic. I think from a
4: UK perspective, you know, when someone says to you go to Australia, you always like Well, it, that's a hell of a long way away, you know. And that for me, for a global event, is where the race should start, somewhere like that and an outpost. Um, you know, even Brazil you know, to, to start in a, a destination. And I do mean this with, with respect, but not many people know where Bahrain is. And of course, that's the point. That is why they pay the money to be the first race in the F1 calendar is that they want people to know where it is. And, you know, it's incredible to think that next year Bahrain will be the, you know, be the 20th year that they host the Bahrain Grand Prix. You know, that is some achievement. You know, when you think of, you know, fairly small, 1.4 million, I think, people is the population there, you know, and, and, the attendance last year, I'm not sure what it was for this year was a record at 35,000. So not a lot of people going to the race, but it is sold out and it is, it is popular and it, it works for them, you know? So that's how, that's how F1 works, isn't it? I think next year it changes. I think it goes back to Australia for, for the opening race because I think it clashes with Ramadan. And I think that's something which will, which will change, but then it'll probably switch back
2: to Bahrain again. So we'll get one one little year of that opening start of the season and maybe you'll go out there because, I mean, you've got to go to the first race of the season. You,
4: you go to the first one. And I, I think it's, it's slightly different as well. The way the teams are looking at it is the, the calendar is, is bonkers. How do you keep all these races in the mix and keep people happy and not impinge on territories. You know, there's a lot to to go into into this. Um and of course testing this year was slightly different. We 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 struggled with the concept of only three days of testing testing. If you have it in Barcelona and there's potential there for bad weather, you know, I've gone out today and dropped the kids at school and it's snowing and I'm like, wow, you know if at Barcelona, we had snow a couple of years ago, if you've only got three days of testing, it's not very representative for the rest of the year. So that's why, Barcelona, sorry, that's why Bahrain is picked as a testing venue, because they can get more meaningful running and it makes sense. And of course, all the equipment's there. So if all the equipment's there, bar the cars and the staff are there, logistically and financially, it does make sense to start the race in the Middle East. So I can understand the argument. It just it just feels a little bit strange, I suppose, is, is, is the only way I can describe it. And it was definitely flat.
2: Now, teams obviously go into this first weekend, this first race of the season with some trepidation. You know, things, as you say, with the testing, if they've not done enough laps, if things haven't been quite tested as much as they want to, then they're going to go into that race not knowing a few things and McLaren certainly didn't look overly impressive in that first race. Were there any more teams that were visibly more sort of focused and maybe less available for you as a journalist being out there because they were just, you know, a little bit behind maybe? Um, No, I think everyone was was available to whoever you wanted to speak to. I think that
4: there was definitely a... Swagger amongst Aston Martin. I I felt, you know, you you saw a lot of key players there. Martin Whitmarsh doesn't usually turn up to many races, but he was there for the season open. It was almost as if they knew that the car was good and they kind of wanted to be there to to savor it. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that team has spent absolutely millions and millions and millions of pounds trying to get to where they are now, and finally they've achieved it. So they want to, you know, enjoy the success. Okay, that's that's fine. So, you know, they were definitely more. Um, available, if you like, um, or, or more visible. I think McLaren were, were fairly good too. You know, I spoke to Lando as, as we usually do ahead of the race, and, you know, he was kind of in reflective mode. I think he knows that he's facing another challenge for the second year running, but he's always said, like the team have, it's all about 2024 for them in terms of regular wins and 2025 to be looking for, a, you know, a championship. That's how long it takes in Formula One. It's a quick sport, but it obviously takes a long time to turn things around. You could say that that three year plan four years if you include last year etc that's what aston martin have achieved you know they've been investing heavily into the project they've got a new factory and or new developed factory and they're spending a lot of money on the background McLaren doing something similar in the wind tunnel and recruitment wise and they're making steady progress it's just that we can't see it because everyone else has improved and i think that they're going to be looking now for, for 2024 And 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 beyond.
2: There was some talk in the paddock, I believe, around Zach Brown maybe making some tentative inquiries as to uh, a new powertrain.
4: Yeah, that's kind of standard, isn't it? (laughs) You know, if, if you're, I think, if you're a team principal, you need to know what other people are doing. So he did have a nose round at Red Bull. Um, to see what they're able to offer. He wants to know the price. He wants to see what the facility is. So I think he's just being you know, inquisitive. And I think that any team principal doesn't do the same, isn't doing their job in the same way that if a driver is available, whether you're interested or not, you, you, you owe it to your team and to your current drivers and, and everyone, the shareholders, to find out how much that driver wants. And if you don't make that inquiry, then you're letting everyone down because you've got to have a clear picture of what everyone else is offering and that is a way you know where you can get insight and and you don't know what he's going to see going around Red Bull what they're able to pro- you know probably offer him that may swing it in in that favor so um you know and it also keeps Mercedes on 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 the toes as well I know he's got that deal with you know the engine deal that they have but if they see that he's looking at rivals then Maybe they'll think, okay, maybe um, we won't be charging you so much next time if you're looking to go elsewhere. So, mm. I think it only benefits the team by doing so, and, and also mentioning it in the press keeps it there, and it you know makes it a little bit more high profile. So. Fair play to him for
2: doing so. Yeah, get those mind games going. It leads me quite nicely onto Oscar Piastri, obviously one of three rookies uh, that were making their debuts. Or I mean, no, I know Nick DeVries has obviously raced before, but making their debuts for the, the full season mm. and sort of varying levels of success for them. Obviously, Oscar didn't exactly have a, a race to remember. But as you mentioned, there sort of Logan Sargent did uh, fairly well and, and was obviously buzzing to be uh, to be twelfth. Did you get a chance to speak to any of those rookies and just see how they were feeling? Because you know, you see Formula One drivers on on TV and they're all very cool calm and collected but mm-hmm. when you're a rookie and you know there's been a lot of you see all the media work they do before they actually get in the car and all the team filming and everything you know things like that will just build up what yeah. a momentous day it is to be in your first proper race.
4: Yeah I, I caught up with um, Mark Webber who, who manages um, Oscar Piastri and I was saying how is it how's it all going and he's like look he's just super cool super super relaxed and you need to remember that Oscar hasn't driven a car for You know, 12 12 months prior, because he was out of the, um, he won the GP2 championship and that meant, or F2. I always call it GP2, but it's Formula 2 now. He won the championship and that means that you can't go and race it the following year. So he had last year on the sidelines. So, you know, pretty rusty. He must have been eager to get going. And of course, he's waited his whole life, you know, to get into Formula 1. And this is the moment that he can make his debut. And, I mean, I've sort of spoken to a few of his um, members in his camp and I'm like, look, you just got to keep it clean and just get through it and, and and hope that everything goes okay. And of course, yeah, that's all we're going to do. That's what we want to do and want to achieve. And of course he retires on after lap 13 and you're like, Hmm, very disappointing. The only thing I would say is that it wasn't his fault. That was a, a car failure um, in the steering column. We think um, the car just shut down. It was a gearbox issue related to the steering wheel, but, the, the actual pace wasn't too bad in those 13 laps, and he looked actually pretty good in, in qualifying as well. So maybe it's not all doom
2: and gloom. Uh, a couple more quick things before we move on. Uh, Jane Paul, To so most people, yes. no one will know who Jane Paul is, and I've been listening to your uh, brand-new podcast, Ben, which is now the perfect time for you to plug.
4: <laughs> yes, we've got a new podcast coming out with um, Beck Clancy, and we we produced something which uh, we hope is quite entertaining, um, and it's called Inside the Piranha Club and it's kind of you know we're going to the races and it's just providing insight into what's going on around the subjects of f1
2: yeah really really straight talking which i think is needed it fits uh, somewhere in the podcast sphere of formula one as everyone including us here seem to have a formula one podcast these days uh so yeah jane paul was mentioned quite a lot and it's uh i mean i'll let you explain it ben but it's quite an interesting one it's uh again a bit of mind games perhaps yeah it's an
4: interesting one you know she was a uh, you know christian horner's right hand woman you know closest ally she'd been at red bull for for a number of years and, and knew everything you know she, she we talk about contracts earlier on you know she knows about wages she knows understands about the cost cap you know there's so much that she understands about the Red Bull organization and um yeah she 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 left Red Bull and, and I think that they were you know assuming that she would just you know that would be it that would be the end of her involvement in Formula One but she turned up in the paddock, didn't she, on on day one? But she wasn't wearing red ball clothes. She was wearing a Mercedes top, and she was walking with Toto Wolf. And it's like, wow, you know, that's actually. A pretty good get for Toto because it must have angered Christian knowing everything that she knows about his team I, th- I can imagine Christian Horner being fairly upset about that definitely cat amongst the pigeons and it'll be interesting to see what she's able to provide Mercedes with in terms of knowledge
2: yeah you'd have thought there'd be some kind of no compete clause so that she couldn't work for another team for five years but yeah maybe that's uh, they need to work you know the, the cars are doing all right but they need to work on someone in the office getting those things in contract and <laughs> um, finally uh, new testing that's going to happen a little bit later in the year at Imola and and this one's yep. interesting, where the drivers are going to be forced to use different types of tyres. Well, not forced. Forced sounds really too... too uh, the rules will depict that they have to use different tyres. So in theory, the lap times will just get quicker and quicker and quicker and stop, I guess, that element of drivers saying, well, this isn't working for us. I think it was maybe Ferrari that, that went in and, and put yep. the softs on in, in Q1 because they just weren't getting the speeds they needed. And actually... Could it make it more exciting? It could do. I mean, every time that these tyres are changed, it is another element,
4: an unknown. And the more unknowns that we have, the the better. I think that what Pirelli are doing, the tyre supplier, is they're looking to uh, work with F1 in terms of sustainability. So... In in F1 we have the tyre blankets and they they're usually heating tyres up to reach the proper tight temperatures. So, you know the drivers as soon as they hit the track they can get the best out of them. They're looking to do away with that to, to cut the energy costs because it obviously costs money to heat these tyres for three hours before the race. To to I mean they used to be a hundred degrees. They they've cut that down now, but um, you know effectively they're going to slice that that away and and the drivers have got to do the work themselves. So they're effectively be putting coal tyres on the car and make it work. So. It's an unknown. Let's see what happens. I don't think they'll like it. They'll push back, you know, and, and it will be up there, up to then to, for Pirelli to talk to the FIA and the grounds of safety and the arguments, everything else that will follow. Let's see what happens. Anything that changes the sport, though, and mixes it up, as I mentioned, is a good thing as far as I'm concerned.
2: Well, I think we'll watch this space on that one. Thank you very much for joining me, Ben. You can read more from Ben in the Sun newspaper and online and check out that podcast he mentioned inside the Piranha Club for more insight from the paddock. Next here on On Track, we'll hear from Alessandra Chilliberti. She's the woman behind the design of the brand-new Gen 3 Formula E car.
0: Hold that, please. Level 5. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns.
1: Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you.
0: Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to in the Biparsal Rise plug sale.
1: The most important thing is what? Sorry.
0: The single most important thing is to in the channelized been Bingus of the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine.
1: Uh yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find
2: collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. You're listening to On Track, the brand new motorsport show from TalkSport 2. I'm John Jackson, and so far on this show, we've taken you behind the scenes of the FIA Formula E World Championship. I've spoken to drivers and teams as they prepare for race day. They tackle brand new street circuits as well, and we've been there right after the race to see the emotion as drivers leave the podium after winning or perhaps missing out, or maybe like last week, like Sam Bird, not even making the grid. Now, throughout the year, I'm going to go behind the scenes even more and speak to some of the people who've had a huge role to play but perhaps didn't get all the glory in front of the cameras like the drivers do. This week, I caught up with someone who's responsible for something that everyone who's watched a Formula E race this year will have seen. I guarantee it's impossible not to. It's the new striking and futuristic and very divisive Gen 3 car. Alessandra Ciliberti is the FIA Formula E technical manager. She's also the Gen 3 project lead and as you can imagine, her job is pretty varied.
1: Yes, well, as part of my role as a technical manager for the championship, I've been obviously leading the uh, technical development of the Gen three car which um, took most of my time really it's been a development that run over the last two years going through you know design stages first and uh, selection of uh, specific suppliers to uh, support the provision of uh, single supplied items and then obviously some uh, truck testing and uh, then uh, the the most important bit which which is handing over what is being developed by us to the competitors to the manufacturers and uh, making sure the integration into their cars work correctly
2: so how long have the manufacturers had with the car after you've done all your testing and made sure it's up to your standards and, and then how you know how long have they had that car before the season started in Mexico?
1: Over a year, I would say, maybe less than a year. If we consider there's been a overlap between uh, what we called season eight with the uh, previous Gen 2 cars and then uh, obviously the development of Gen 3 cars that all run in parallel for half a year. Uh, so all manufacturers were very busy trying, you know, to to bring both activities uh, forward in parallel. And then from maybe from August onwards, we had full focus from manufacturers to support the development uh, throughout September. And then uh, uh, going into pre-season Valencia testing in December and uh, starting the season in Mexico.
2: Amazing! So quick turnaround for those teams to get used to this new car and and work out how to get the the best out of it. Um, I believe you started, uh, you know, you've been involved in Formula One in the past. What? made you sort of make the jump to formula e what excited you about the the sort of project that's going on here
1: obviously the um, from from an engineering point of view because I have uh, an engineering background dealing with electric technologies is quite exciting there's a you know a very fast evolution on these topics so obviously we you know we are attracted by uh, following and shaping the future of electric mobility uh, having access as uh, being in a motorsport environment having access to you know cutting-edge technologies And seeing whether you know where the future is going and how we can thrive the electric mobility overall in the right direction
2: it must be really nice for you and i've spoken to some of the teams and you know their research goes into their actual road cars it must be really nice for you to see some of the technology that you've worked on with the the team involved here going into sort of consumer vehicles as well
1: well yes the beauty of Formula E is that um, some bits of the cars are common, and then obviously they have their own perimeter that they develop and that, you know, which, which is attracting them really. So what we're trying to do is making sure manufacturers are really focusing their resources and, you know, teams and, and money onto uh, what is relevant from a technological standpoint to enable the transfer on their side from ro- race to road technologies. And then all the rest, including, you know, the chassis, uh, obviously the battery is a is an important bit which still remains common to keep costs down. And then uh, you have, uh, you know, uh, Gen 3 is the first single seater with a front powertrain. Uh, so we have actually uh, a four wheel drive in braking. So that's uh, that's really a, you know, a, s- a specific feature of this car. And all this is common. So it's delivered the same to all competitors, enabling them to focus on powertrain, innovation and software evolutions.
2: What was your first impression when you first sort of sat back and saw the cars going around the track? It must have been quite a, a sort of big moment for you having worked on this project for over two years, you know, and just, just seeing them with the liveries and everything. It must have been quite special
1: yeah indeed already in Valencia and then mexico the first race and uh, it's been very exciting with all the efforts uh, me and the rest of the team at the fia the promoter of the championship and all our suppliers have put into it um so definitely exciting and happy to see it. the project is moving forward and cars you know just being driven and you know all is, is going the right way
2: what were the biggest challenges in developing this car i mean it's, it's a huge increase in power and obviously the car being lighter and, you know, that has certain effects on, you know, physics. I mean, has anything, you know, been a a big sort of hurdle that, that maybe took a lot of your efforts to get around?
1: Well, I guess the whole thing really took, uh, took a lot of, um, um, you know, effort from a technical standpoint, we wanted a car that was really specifically adapted to street racing conditions. So we set specific targets like the car has to be lighter. The car has to be more agile. So we wanted it to be uh, lighter, smaller, uh, narrower, but then also increase performance, increase the power in release and regen, efficiency. Adding components such as the front power train kit. So all this, you know, was only possible going through a way of uh, you know selecting bespoke technologies, which is I guess the biggest step that we have done compared to Gen Two cars. Really, you know, we've gone for bespoke solutions to enable all these uh, targets to be met. You know, all actually the best trade-off across all targets to be met.
2: How do you see these cars evolving next? Because they will surely evolve like the Gen 2 and the Gen 1 cars did. And um, what do you what do you see being the next maybe, you know, for the, maybe the next season, the thing that changes first that you've already maybe identified?
1: Well, we're looking at different things. Um, so the Gen 3 has a life cycle of four years and two years of homologation cycle for the manufacturers. So looking at what we're going to do with these cars in season 11 and 12, um, there's a few work streams that we are investigating. The first one will be eventually to develop uh, our front powertrain kit to also work in traction for specific scenarios, not all the time, but just, you know, um, showcase that bit of technology. Uh, we are looking obviously as a, tire, a, a to a tire evolution to do a, another step in performance there. We definitely be looking at, you know, relifting the car and eventually also optimizing what's uh, around, you know, aerodynamic specific uh, parameters. You know, these are the three obvious ones, but in the background there's a lot other things that we are investigating to make our championship exciting and attractive across four years.
2: You must take a lot of feedback from the teams and drivers on that as well.
1: Yeah, obviously yeah, we're gathering feedback from the drivers who appreciate, you know, uh, get, getting that feeling, that bit of feeling and if there's anything that we can integrate into the development even now, you know, the biggest part of the development obviously is over because cars are running, but we are not closed to, to any, you know, feedback uh, that we can get from drivers to keep evolving and improving as the as we move along.
2: How much of the new car is software driven because we see it in all technology. I mean, I'm holding a phone now which Apple, tell me, is all about the technology of the software working in tandem with the hardware. Is that kind of where we're at with the cars now?
1: Well, definitely, uh, Formula E has a lot of software in it. uh, And that's one of the major aspects that manufacturers and then competitors are are developing and working on throughout the season. We develop components and we hand those components uh, over to them, but then it's up to the competitors and uh, manufacturers to uh, develop the software, the logic behind it and optimize the use of it.
2: And then my final question is, you you mentioned how the cars And the track, even the track is, and Formula E is a lot different to other racing series. How much of the track? sort of setups do you go you know do you consider when you're looking at the cars because as you say you want them to be more agile because you know we see more hairpins and 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 just a different design in this championship
1: we're really living in a in a transitional period in that respect because the cars are now more powerful the cars are more specific in the way they work and they perform so what we are leaving now is a transition where we want the track also to be adapted to the specifics of this car and not just the opposite gen 2 gen 1 was more more about you know just street racing but what we have to do now is make Making sure we're still, uh, you know, respecting the core principle of the championship, which is uh, racing in street circuits, but then making sure the street circuit, the way it's laid out. Is a- adapted to the specifics of this car, so that you you know you, put, you can leverage and all the technologies and uh, and the performance criteria that we have set for it.
2: Well, very interesting to hear how that new car was developed, and it's quite obvious that the development never stops in any form of motorsport, and especially Formula E. There's now a bit of a break after round five in Cape Town. Pascal Verline is still leading the championship in the TAG Heuer Porsche, but we've got Sao Paulo coming up, and as we've seen in the last two races in Cape Town and in Hyderabad in India, they were brand new tracks and Pascal Verlund's not done too well at those brand-new tracks, so who knows what's going to happen. Loads more races coming up in the year as well, with two races in Berlin, Monaco, a couple in Jakarta portland usa for the first time and then a double header in both rome and london to end the season in july so lots to come from the formula e world championship in the meantime you're listening to on track on Talksport 2 with formula e where you can go behind the scenes of last season on all four and discovery plus and watch formula e unplugged six episodes are available for you to watch right now coming up next here on on track it's time to talk indycar This is On Track, the brand new motorsport show from TalkSport 2. I'm John Jackson and it's time to go stateside. Let's talk about IndyCar. It was the first race of the new season. Uh, they've coincided it with Formula 1, which is really useful when you're a Formula 1 writer at Autosport like Jake boxall Legg is. Jake, how do you manage it? How do you manage to it? A multi-screen? Is that what we're talking here?
5: Uh, it is a bit of multi-screen. Uh, I'm usually trying to transcribe something in between as well so I've got a multitask. Um, but, you know, I always love watching IndyCar. It's uh, one of my favourite categories out there. So, you know, I make time for it in my own way.
2: Yeah. So obviously, you know, I say you're a Formula One writer, but we've traveled with Formula E before. I've uh, seen you in in various different um, professional and unprofessional situations. Obviously, I'm just talking about in in a bar afterwards, nothing too silly or anything like that. But you know what? I'm completely, and I'll hold my hands up, I'm completely new to IndyCar. It's been something I've known has existed and I've maybe watched clips of, but I've never watched a full race. So I made a point of watching the the race in St. Petersburg in Florida on Sunday. And my, my first impressions of it is it's crazy.
5: It is, because strategy is kind of so different to you know, Formula One or Formula E or something like that. Uh, there's refueling safety cars happen a lot more there's a lot more street tracks and ovals as well can get pretty crazy as well so uh i'm, I'm looking forward to you for you to see an oval race because that will blow your mind
2: yeah i'm going on a i'm going on a journey because you know there's only so much sport you can watch and you know covering different types of sport it's i mean just keeping track of it is really really hard so i'm making a commitment this year to watch as many indycar races as i possibly can you know i think for someone approaching indycar as a lot of the people in the uk probably will be because i feel like it's more accessible now i don't know what Where when when and where it was broadcast before but you know it was certainly available straight away on the tv after the formula one had finished i was you know straight over to indycar and i think there are familiar names you know much like with formula e you know you see some of the names that have been in formula one and if you're new to it you can come across and you already know a few of the drivers and you know certainly marcus erickson who ended up winning the race i'm familiar with from his time in formula one i feel like a lot of people just support him for that reason because it didn't quite go his way in Formula One, but also you know you've got Roman Grosjean who was doing really well until he crashed. So I feel like it's quite accessible, is it? As it sort of. How how has IndyCar grown in the last few years for us over in the UK to be able to consume?
5: Well, it's been it's been strange because I remember watching it on slightly less uh, by slightly less legal means. Let's say uh, in the first few years I started watching it, but um, I think honestly it kind of happened when Fernando Alonso did the Indy Five Hundred. Everyone's kind of interest kind of peaked, I guess, particularly in the UK. McLaren entering the the, uh, the sport, it's you know, it's a well-known name in UK motorsport circles. And then having guys like Roman Grosjean, like Marcus Ericsson, and then those who watch Formula 2, like Callum Ilot and Christian Lungard and guys like that all coming in. It's just kind of added that sort of, uh, not quite credibility as such, but that sort of familiarity uh, for the UK audience. And, you know, since Sky has been uh, broadcasting the package on their channel, it's yeah, definitely made it more accessible for sure.
2: Roman Grosjean, let's talk about him then, because obviously he left Formula One in, you know, a a very uh, serious situation, which obviously we're really glad he recovered from in that that huge crash uh, a couple of seasons ago. And he was in Formula One until then. I, I don't mean... In a horrible way, but he was, you know, joked about quite a lot because there were quite a few mistakes, and you know, it was, it was, there was always seemed to be something with Roman Grosjean maybe not being the best driver. And I think in IndyCar, from a newbie's perspective, you know, he's very good at it, and it, it shows you that he is a very good driver. And obviously, you know, things did happen in Formula One, but he's put that behind him, and I think it gives you an idea also that sometimes in Formula One, the best drivers aren't necessarily the people who are at the front. They are, you know, you've seen what Fernando Alonso's already done and how good he is. He's just not had the right car for a few years and he came third on Sunday. And it's kind of like that with Roman Grosjean because, you know, he's up the front there and he's becoming a big star.
5: Well, definitely. And he came into IndyCar on the back of his uh, massive crash in Formula One, took a chance on something new, um, kind of did it. I wouldn't say piecemeal, but he, he missed the oval rounds in his first season when he was racing with Dale Quin Racing, which is one of the smaller teams on the IndyCar grid. Um, but he really kind of took the series by storm, got the Andretti drive. Things last season didn't work out for him, but there was that great drive a couple of years ago from him at Laguna Seca where he was putting moves on people through the corkscrew, which is this big twisty downhill turn and it's it's you know very very difficult to get a move done there and he's just got this uncompromising driving ability we've kind of seen that from his best in Formula One and also his worst as well but it really works for him in IndyCar with the fact that he's willing to kind of make those moves and try and do something a little bit special he's kind of got that sort of like like that little switch where he just does something and it's either on the limit or it, it goes very, very badly. And he, he was leading the race, uh, in the early stages, he did take pole in the race. Uh, and unfortunately the race just kind of uh, came to an end for him in, uh, ignominious circumstances.
2: Mm-hmm. It was fairly abrupt, but also, you know, and obviously if you caught the race, you'll have seen this, but if you haven't, it's worth checking out. I mean that, that corner there, there was a, a huge smash, which, led to, you know, a, a little bit of a delay. And obviously all the drivers were, that were involved were okay. And, you know, you had the situation where there's a car going over the top of another car, which is always very, very serious. You know, that that was very exciting to watch at the time. Now, you know, you know, everyone's all right. But also something that I noticed in IndyCar is how quickly they clear these things up. In Formula One, it seems like they take ages to make sure everything's rebuilt and everything. In IndyCar, I mean, they just hoiked the cars off the track. There was a, you know, a couple of vans came out, rebuilt the barrier, crack on. I mean... I feel like Formula One could learn something from this.
5: I think definitely. I think being a street circuit helps because they can, you know, the walls are so solid as well that they can just kind of crane the cars off, make sure the walls are all good and and they're good to go. Um, The flip side of that is, and you'll maybe see this, uh, a potential oval round a bit later in the season. They can't really race in the wet on an oval. So that causes a different kind of delays. There's kind of pros and cons to IndyCar for sure. Um, but as you say, yeah, it was dealt with very, very quickly. You know, there was a lot of cars, like five, uh, six or seven cars, in that melee, and it was good to see everybody get out of it because you know there was a car airborne. Devlin Di Francesco uh, went to the air when Benjamin Pedersen went into him. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite hefty. But it did kind of shake things up a little bit.
2: Yeah, it did. Calamaiot is a name that people might recognise if they've watched, you know, the past to Formula One, uh, drove in F two and what F three and F two. And has sort of gone across to IndyCar. And actually, you know, I think a lot of people are saying that he could potentially be a star because he did pretty well coming fifth. I know a lot of cars ahead of him maybe came off, but it really seemed like... We don't see this so much with young British drivers, perhaps going over to you know drive against people with American names like Stingray Rob, uh, which I think <laughs> is one thing actually about IndyCar. I was a little bit disappointed there's not quite as many American names as you might get in NASCAR, but um, you know certainly Callum Ilot is someone who's who's really impressing, and it's good to see a Brit doing well. It is. Um, he made
5: that decision to go to IndyCar, kind of uh, let's say on a break from the Ferrari Driver Academy after he'd done a couple of seasons of F2 and, and finished as runner-up to. Schumacher. He made that kind of decision himself. Otherwise, it would have just been, you know, a testing role, reserve role, and he wanted to go out and race. So it was kind of sort of proactive on his part. You know, he's been racing with the uh Hunkos Hollinger racing outfit, which is one of the smallest teams on the grid. Um, they've only just expanded to two cars. They've been on the IndyCar grid before, went away, came back. So honestly, to see him doing that well with an underfunded, smaller team that doesn't have engineering expertise of a penske or a ganassi or an andretti you know it's a really really good performance and see him get fifth at st petersburg people have been talking about him for a very very long time and to see that yeah it's been it's been great for sure
2: personally as a new fan of IndyCar, i'm going to be following him as sort of my guy i've picked him as my guy if other people are listening now and they want to maybe pick someone to follow who would you give a shout out for? I mean, I mean, you know, maybe who are you following? who Who's the, who's the person that you think would give the most entertainment if they decide to start following IndyCar this year?
5: I think in terms of entertainment, I mean, with Grosjean, you're not far wrong, and uh, I would say the other person in their clash, Scott McLaughlin. Um, that was a very, very supercars move, um, and he or he comes obviously from the Australian supercars background, so he had to adapt to racing in IndyCar in a single seat series. He's done very, very well, and I think. As well, in the uh, the Aaron McLarens, you've got Pato Award, who just seems to have this fantastic car control, and he's great to watch, and he almost won it at the weekend as well, if not for a little engine glitch. He might be a familiar name to some people that also watch F1 because he tested uh, a McLaren F1 car. And the other side of that coin as well, you've got guys like Alex Pillow, um, who also tested for McLaren, champion in 2021, very, very quick had a difficult road through the junior categories, ended up in IndyCar and, uh, is really flourished. And then you've got guys like Colton Herter as well, who might also be a familiar name. Um, very, very quick, very nearly in with a shout of an Alpha F1 drive, but unfortunately didn't have the super license points to make it. So he's, he's sticking with IndyCar, but, and then you've got the, the old guys like Will Power and Helio Castro and, uh, you know, the guys that have been around forever, Graham Rahal, um, they're, they're stalwarts of the IndyCar car category and uh scott dixon as well uh you cannot ever discount him he's one of those drivers that could you know start from 20th and he will end up you know in the top three by the end of it he's just got that fantastic race ability so there's so many big names there that you can that you can follow and should look out
2: for right take your pick the next race is at the texas motor speedway so that's an oval right so is this is this going to be a complete uh a completely different experience in my very very quick introduction to indycar
5: definitely um the cars will look different because they'll all be trimmed out for for top speeds uh they'll be going well over 200 miles an hour on you know what is essentially uh, a very very short track and it will it will blow your mind it's fantastic racing seeing cars go three or four wide uh getting so close to the banking as well it's the fact that they've got the bravery to do that, uh, I think even you know even some of Formula One's bravest drivers have gone. Mm, I don't know if I'll do an oval or not. It is a different form of racing. It will be very action packed, very accident packed, but it will be a really great watch for sure.
2: Well, that's the same weekend as the Australian Grand Prix. So obviously in the UK, that'll be on really early and then IndyCar be on later into the evening. So you can literally bookmark your day of motorsport with those two. Uh, Jake, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, You can read more of your excellent work at Autosport and you're generally focusing on Formula One this season.
5: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, South Africa was my last Formula E race, but I think, let's be honest, it was one of the better ones in terms of race, in terms of location. Uh, So it was a good one to go out on. And yeah, I'll be doing Formula One this year, which I'm very much looking forward to.
2: Well, obviously you can read more of Jake's excellent work on auto sports. And I'm sure Jake will catch up uh, as the season goes on in IndyCar. Maybe you can educate me a little bit further. Looking forward to my first oval race. Uh, You're listening to On Track here with Talk Sport 2. This show is available as a podcast right now. So you can go to your podcast app. You can try type in On Track. Hold that, please. Level five.
0: Thank you.
2: You can hit subscribe and you won't miss an episode. We'll be back next Tuesday from 4pm on Talk Sport 2. Thanks for listening.